Welcome to Logically Faithful, this is Calvin Swice. Hope you're doing well under your home lockdown, quarantine, whatever it is we call it nowadays. Anyway, um, this particular segment we will be discussing something I found absolutely fascinating. I've been reading a lot more of Soren Kierkegaard uh, lately, and his position is about the analysis between the subjective and the objective, uh, between what is true with a capital T and true with a small t. And it comes down to the issue of the um, of despair. Um, and all of us go through some levels of despair. So what I'm going to do today is, is interview one of the scholars on the issue who uh, is brilliant in his own right because he's been studying this uh, for so long on his own. Um, so Aaron Simmons is a philosophy professor and he's been doing some work extensively in the Kierkegaard tradition. So I'm going to quote a portion of Kierkegaard's work here and then I'll, give, um, I'll open up for the discussion I had with Aaron Simmons uh, and love to hear your feedback on that. And by the way, guys, if you never gave me a review on iTunes, um, if you really enjoy this, that would mean a lot to me. It would help me to continue doing what I'm doing better, as well as uh, share this episode if you found it helpful. All right, so here's the quote from uh, Soren Kierkegaard's book, the, um, the Sickness Unto Death, which is uh, profound in its own right, and I highly recommend it to you. Here's what he says. Whether you are a man or a woman, rich or poor, dependent or free, happy or unhappy, whether you bore in your elevation the splendor of the crown or in humility, obscurity, only the toil and the heat of the day, whether your name will be remembered for as long as the world lasts, so you will have been remembered as long as it lasted, or you are without a name and run namelessly without the numberless multitude. Whether the glory that surrounds you surpasses all human description, or the severest and the most ignominious of human judgment was passed upon you. Eternity asks you in every one of these millions of millions just one thing. Whether you have lived in despair or not. Whether so in despair that you did not know that you were in despair. Or in such a way that you bore the sickness concealed deep inside you as your gnawing secret under your heart, like the fruit of a sinful love, or in such a way that a terror to others you raged in despair. If then you lived in despair, then whatever else you have won or lost, for you everything is lost. Eternity does not acknowledge you. It never knew you, or still more dreadful, it knows you as you are known, and it manacles you to yourself in despair. What Kierkegaard is saying there is that there, there are different levels of despair, different levels of uh, going through a period in your life where you realize there is complete and utter hopelessness. No matter how much you succeed, no matter how well you do, deep within you, you know sooner or later it's all going to end in nothingness. Um, so you can't really even enjoy the time now because you think within you that this is, this is all going to collapse one day. Uh, so you think in, in, in negative pessimistic fashion or it's a portion of your life where you try to uh, diminish the pain within you but with distractions or ethical obligations uh, to keep you from thinking about the dreadfulness of the, the depth of, of sadness within you. How do we deal with this on an existential level and what does religion or how does God even help us through this on a deep level other than mere merely quoting scripture to each other? So this is the point of my interview here with Aaron Simmons. Um, I hope you'll give it a listen and um, I love your feedback on it. I found it to be extremely beneficial and profound. So without further ado, here is portion of the interview where we jump right in uh, and Aaron starts telling us a little bit about himself and then we'll go from there to the interview. You know, William Lane Craig and uh, Richard Swinburne and others. I always found it to leave me cold at the level of my lived practice. You know, I loved the arguments and the kind of logic chopping that was involved. And then I would go to church and it was like, man, there's something though about being invested in God that was different. And Kierkegaard kind of got that right for me. So I often say now that um, Kierkegaard is who allows me to remain a Christian because he made it okay for me to wrestle and struggle and ask questions and think that uh, lots of the power structures and dominance and triumphalism that happens in Christian churches and Christian communities might actually be 
dangerous for the life of a narrative of a canonic God, a God who humbles God's self into human form. So for me, Kierkegaard humanized Christianity and allowed me to remain a Christian in the process. So that's kind of how I got started. I've written, I don't know, four or five books now on Kierkegaard. I'm the president of the Kierkegaard Society. Um, and all of that kind of utterly surprises me, having started as this Francis Schaeffer disciple who thought Kierkegaard was de you know, destroying Christian life. So that, that's kind of how I got going. Well, it's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. There, there's so much there um, that uh, the Kierkegaard helps us touch into the subjective area of life in a, um, in a way that a lot of us who are cognitively inclined or more logical or mm -hmm. analytical, we want to focus on why I believe what I believe and give me the logic, give me the truth. And then the subjectivity can come in later. I think one of the ways um, academics or people who are more inclined toward uh, uh, logic and thinking and evidence, uh, or show me the evidence, show me the proof, um, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're afraid of the, the postmodern or the, uh, the tendency of the wishy-washiness of our emotions. You know, I feel a certain way, therefore it must be true. So we want to push away from that and say, no, I want, I want apologetical or logical, consistent evidence for what I believe. But then you're talking about, well, this is leaving me cold. I want something deeper. Um, so, so that says that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. All yeah. right. So um, what I'm going to do, go through here with you and then just get your insights on this in, in your books that you've written. By the way, um, feel free to recommend the ones you find to be helpful for us um, as we go through this in a particular arena. Absolutely. So I'm going through the, um, the, the three stages of life from Soren. And uh, the first stage he talks about is the, uh, the aesthetic stage. And then he talks about what's called the um, ethical stage and finally the religious or the spiritual stage. Let's walk us through these. Um, let's, let's, let's go through these together and see how we find our way out of despair into some more enlightenment or even learning that despair itself becomes essential to growth. Let's yes. start with the first stage of life. So uh, I think it's important to understand that these three stages are, there's a debate in the scholarship on this. Some people view them as progressive, that you move from one to the other to the other, and that they are um, sort of teleological, that you move only in one direction. I am of the mind and uh, among the scholars who think that they're instead different modes of existence that we kind of move into and out of at various times in our lives. So I don't think that it's, um, you know, once you get to the religious, you know, kind of once saved, always saved kind of thing happens. Yeah, yeah. It's instead that the religious mode is the goal of human existence, but it's also something that we often have to keep making decisions to move into. So as we talk about these, it's important to understand that we might find ourselves in these different moments at different times in our lives. So the aesthetic stage, the best way to think about this is this is the person who can't make sense of themselves hmm. except via some external object or external achievement. So Kierkegaard calls this the stage of external immediacy. Hmm. And so the way I, I like to think about this is, you know, this is the friend who I'm sure some of y'all have, who like has to get the new iPhone the day it gets released uh -huh. or who leases the car because every three years it's time to trade it in and get the new car or the new version. Um, we call it the, uh, the, the tyranny or the bowing at the altar of the new. Yes. It, it's, it's where novelty becomes a good just because it's different rather than because it's good. And Kierkegaard's example here is actually really fascinating. Um, he talks about a seducer. And he says, imagine this guy, he calls him Johannes, and imagine Johannes the seducer who has to seduce a woman after woman after woman, not because he loves this person or that person, but because he loves desiring the new object. And then it says that the goal is to get the moment right before she steps down the aisle to marry him and then have her run away. <laughs> so the goal is I can't actually enter marriage because that would end this immediacy. It would end the external need for objects. But I want her to get right up to that point because then the satisfaction is almost there and then have to start over because the goal is to continue the desire for that satisfaction, not actually to have it satisfied. Wow. Now, if we compare this, to the ethical stage, the ethical stage he actually compares to a loving marriage. <laughs> so the ethical is where we are, instead of in a stage of immediacy, we're in a stage of mediation. 
where we define ourselves via some grander or transcendent or infinite thing. And the way that Kierkegaard articulates this in particular is that we find ourselves via our social role. So rather than being the single individual who is living in desire of that other object, I am now the professor or the husband or the politician. And so insofar as we become these social roles, we transcend our singularity, this individuality that we find in the world desiring objects, the immediacy of the external, and we actually ground ourselves in this infinite idea of the universal. Hmm. So this is why he calls it the ethical, because what would be more universal than the good? And what is the good? It's the social embodiment of acting in the way that is expected. And here he's drawing on Hegel. So his notion of ethics is entirely synonymous with a Hegelian conception of living appropriate to one's social roles. Hmm. So we can see that both of these models would lead to a kind of despair. And Kierkegaard suggests this in The Sickness Unto Death. The despair of the aesthetic is a despair where you're constantly having to will yourself at every instant because you're never truly you except via some external object. Right. Let's break I get that down. What do you mean? Like, let's say drinking uh, or so, you mentioned um, you know, sensual pleasures or academic pleasures. Expand on that. Yeah. Imagine um, the person who like has a the person, one of your friends, maybe who has a boyfriend and is just, you know, awesome and happy and wonderful. And then the boyfriend breaks up with her, say, and she's crushed and miserable and hates herself. Right. Or vice versa. You know, you've got this friend who absolutely is great because he's got this girlfriend and then, you know, gets dumped and then is just miserable, can't get out of bed, can't live. And then, goodness gracious, two seconds later, meets someone new and suddenly she or he's absolutely thrilled and everything's great and rocking again, right? Uh-huh. That's the immediacy that needs some external to give them a sense of purpose. The problem, of course, is this is going to lead to despair because you're only willing yourself through this object. I got the new phone. I have this feeling of euphoria, and this allows me to feel like I am now fulfilled. Hmm. The problem is phones break. They get old. The new Mac you just got eventually can't handle the new Zoom technology. You got to get a new one. You buy a new one, woo, feeling great again. I actually think, by the way, that it is the aesthetic mode that the vast majority of Americans live in as a default. Mm. And this is why isolation is, is at one level, just so difficult for us. Because, because we're, all, we're too comfortable, right? We're, well, we're, we, we need something else to make us feel like we're doing it correctly. We're not happy enough with ourselves and our families. We have to have that external achievement, that external validation. We've got to go get the new car, get the new refrigerator, whatever it is. The logic of capitalism at its core is an aesthetic logic. It's you need new things in order to continue to validate your contribution to the world. You are dignified by being productive and making more stuff. Interesting. This is a aesthetic despair, says Kierkegaard. Okay. Oh, interesting. We can I mean, get into the political thing here with um, you know, socialism or communism to the extreme level. Mm-hmm. Um, both you know, capitalism and communism seem to both seem to embrace some kind of materialistic ideology that to bring stability and hope and peace for society, we need to give them more stuff, either by, by distributing the wealth or allowing individuals themselves to make that wealth and create it. Either way, it's going back to that. The materialism back aspect to the aesthetic. Right? That's it comes exactly back right. to that aesthetic part of it. That's exactly right. And then you mentioned also the, the uh, caught, getting caught up in the um, the feeling, the rush, the endorphins that go off after that love affair or that phone. Or right. um, uh, how does one escape this? Uh, does that lead us to the next level in the yeah. Are all vibrations, or how does that? How does I mean, that... this is this is sort of the tricky thing. Is we tend to overcome the aesthetic by maturing at some level into the ethical, right? We, we now eventually stop dating around and sowing wild oats and we settle down and get married. We trade in that sports car and get the minivan because it's practical because now we you know, have kids that are 10 or whatever. Right. So you know, we sell the 
um, you know, condo high rise in New York City and, you know, buy the property in the country. Like all of these moves are moves into a kind of um, not not life stage because we get older, but life stage in this Kierkegaardian sense, because we start recognizing the futility of trying to ground ourselves in ever new achievements. We've got to find something that lasts. And so where do we turn? We turn to this stability of our social identity. And this is where the ethical in this Hegelian sense plays out. Now, there's certainly a lot to recommend this, <laughs> as many philosophers have suggested. This does seem to ground us in something greater than ourselves. You know, uh, certain types of patriotism, say, right? Um, you know, country over self. Um, you know, the church itself can be a, you know, I would die for my church. It's more important. Any of these narratives of these grander unities that I am important because I have attached myself to, that relationship is this ethical mediated conception. But mm. notice, the aesthetic was a despair because I'm always trying to be myself, right? I'm always trying to get myself through getting other things. The ethical is a despair because I'm actually eradicating myself into some social role. It's not about me. It's about just being a good father. It's not about me. It's about the church. It's not about me. It's about America. All of these sorts of moves refuse, says Kierkegaard, to recognize the radical importance of the singular individual as grounded in a relationship to what he understands as a personal God. So the despair of aesthetics is a despair because I can't ever get myself because I've always got to get something else to give myself to myself. The ethical is despair because I can't ever get myself because to get myself, I actually eradicate myself in the name of some greater idea. Ah. And so in both ways, Kierkegaard thinks we find ourselves lacking selfhood. And so what he'll suggest in books like Concluding Unscientific Postscript is that the fundamental task of human existence is to become a self. Now, notice how different that is, because the Hegelian model of ethics is we already are selves, right? The goal is to just live into the self that you are. Kierkegaard's thought is, no, 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 no. We are always having to navigate the temptations of external satisfaction and immediacy, of a kind of external mediation via some move to the universal. But at no point are we able to rest into the self that we are becoming as invited by the divine. In many ways, I think this is a kind of Augustinian idea where we are restless until our soul rests with God. This is why the religious for Kierkegaard, the final stage, which remember, isn't final because we get there and we're done. It's instead final because it's the thing that we are always called back to when we give in to that need for the new car or that need to just, you know, be the role or be the professor. And those are not bad things. Kierkegaard's not saying that it's evil to give into the aesthetic. He thinks that it is just a despair inducing mode of existence if we don't recognize it as a kind of temptation. So he's not suggesting that we shouldn't ever, you know, strive to get the nice house or to buy the new car. That's fine. But if we are defined by it, we then have lost ourselves in the despair of the aesthetic. It's fascinating. Like, for example, look at the backdrop that you have. It's, it's, it's beautiful uh, where, where you are. Well, by the way, where are you? Where is that? This is beautiful. <laughs> All right. So I can lose myself by walking around there with you into the wonder of nature. And, um, uh, but, so walk us through that. So if I'm walking through this wondrous um, valley outside that where you are right now, this uh, endemic type of paradise, paradisic state, um, I could in a sense get lost and lose myself in the environment or I can lose myself in my phone or my, 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 my relationship to the person with me. Or at a higher level, I can lose myself by joining into some kind of group, either, either the army or the FBI or a church or whatever it is, and find meaning in that group as a, as a sustaining purpose in my life, which is a higher level than the uh, lower city, more hedonistic. Yeah. Um, 
I how does that. one raise I mean, what fluctuates between those right they're not bad per se but if you right. give yourself over to them so that leads to the question then many of us then we don't know who we are or maybe we're afraid to find out who we yeah. are what, without these things remove all societal constraints remove That's all right. objective realities of, of, of objects and, and events then who am i yeah and this is exactly the way kierkegaard describes it so he articulates in fear and trembling the movement from the ethical into the religious he says it's the double movement of faith now what he means by faith is important because religion or the religious stage is not the same thing for Kierkegaard as being part of the established church. That would be the ethical, right? So by the religious stage, he means a singular investment in relationship to a singular God. That is the movement of faith, he thinks. And why this is so important to him is he says that we actually make a first movement, just as you've described, where we engage in an infinite resignation and we recognize, wow, you know, kind of like in Ecclesiastes, it's all dust in the wind. <laughs> it's, it's all chaff. So I, I'm in my backyard. Um, my son is up here somewhere. You may see him walking around. Yeah, we, we saw him. Um, yeah. uh -huh. And my, my, my yard is beautiful. I love sitting out here. Um, I can't get the cool backdrop to work like you can. <laughs> um, and so that's why if I don't do this, it's like a white drywall uh, uh -huh. you know, door inside or something. But the idea is, if I think somehow I am more significant or I am better at being a self or I am more important because I have this beautiful backyard. Well, notice now I've given into this aesthetic desire for having something that gives me to myself. The problem is if I walk, shoot, half a mile in any direction, I can show you multi-million dollar houses with yards that make mine look like an absolute trash heap. <laughs> so, <laughs> in comparison, right? In comparison. So as C.S. Lewis says, competition and comparison are the philosophy of hell. So that's the danger and the despair that happens in the aesthetic is no matter what I have, I always need to have something else. Now, the, the ethical, of course, is then to say, no, I love what I have. Here I am. I am the father and the husband and the professor, and I have this beautiful backyard and everything is great. But notice, then there's nothing about me that is significant. It's anyone who is the good husband and good father and good professor who has the nice backyard. It's about removing that which defines me as a single individual. So into the movement of faith, we infinitely resign. We abandon any attachment to anything in the world and make the movement toward God. Now, what's so really cool, though, is almost all religious traditions, and Kierkegaard here thinks in particular of Christianity, they stop with that moment. This is where we get the kind of ascetic ideal. You'll see this. Uh, I saw one of the comments in the chat, a reference yeah. to Nietzsche. Right. Nietzsche, of course, talks about the ascetic ideal where we abuse ourselves in order to remind ourselves that we are worthless. And that kind of moment, Kierkegaard thinks, actually is just the movement into faith, but it's not faith. We have to first recognize all of the rest of the stuff isn't important, only God matters. But the real movement of faith, he says, is then recognizing that God has given us the entire world, and therefore we now truly love and appreciate and embrace and accept and receive the world, rather than separating ourselves from it. And in that second moment, he says, is the real movement of faith, we actually become uh, as he puts it, instead of the person who makes the leap up into the air on the trampoline, right? right. Which is kind of how we often talk about the leap of faith. Yes. Kierkegaard actually never uses the phrase leap of faith. He describes the second movement of faith as returning to the ground after that leap. <laughs> but what's the temptation now? We come back, God's given me the world. God also has given me this Lotus and Maserati. Oops, <laughs> right? So as soon as we come back, we can now deceive ourselves with a kind of Christianity of success. 
And that move is why we have to keep making the infinite resignation. No, 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 no. Don't let me be deceived. This is about my relation to God. It's not about stuff. And then God continues to throw us back into our embodied condition, reminding us that the world has been given to us as gift. So faith is a constant movement. It's not a once and done thing. And Kierkegaard, in fact, will go so far as to define it as a task for a lifetime. So the real goal is to continually become a Christian, he says, rather than giving in to the idea that you already are one, which would be the complacency of the ethical. Wow, that's profound. So it's not um, this hierarchical stage and once you get there, you arrived. Rather, the reality is that you just jump back and forth on these stages. You're just bouncing back and forth depending on where you are in life. Um, Think of it as like, uh, my favorite metaphor is a paradigm shift. Uh, so right. Jamie Ferreira appropriates this from uh, Thomas Kuhn. Yeah, Thomas Kuhn. Says, being able to shift our ways of looking at the world, it's not saying this way of looking is bad. Mm -hmm. It's just to recognize that if I'm looking at the world via an ethical framework, then I'm, I'm not able to make sense of it according to an aesthetic framework. And if I look at it according to an aesthetic framework, I'm never going to be able to take ethics seriously. And so the point is to remind ourselves that we are always moving across these different modes, okay. the goal of which is to, as Kierkegaard puts it, inherit the second immediacy of religion. So if aesthetics was immediate, mm -hmm. ethics was mediation, the second immediacy is the religious. And the reason that it's a second immediacy is because we now find ourselves engaged in the world and with others, but we get it in this immediate way without needing to go through some universal category to make it valuable. It's valuable because it is. And God has granted all of existence, and this is all now gifted in a way that allows us to inherit our embodiment as gift itself. Mm, a number of years ago, I had this vision or dream that was disturbing on one level and another level enlightening. I guess they were both intertwined with each other. I, um, I woke up and I went to the, the mirror and slowly I started chipping away at who I am. I started removing my name, my family, my community, um, the language I speak, the things I enjoy, boom, boom, started chipping those away, almost like the, the, one of the main characters in the Narnia series who had his scales being ripped off of him. Little by little, then I end up with, then I started peeling away, like physiologically and of course metaphorically, my own body. As Descartes would say, am I more than my body or am I a body with a soul or a soul without body or am I just a combination between the two? Um, and even though I'm left now with my memories, my impressions, all right, remove my memories. Okay, remove my ability to speak. Remove my ability to believe. All right, now what am I? And then it, it dawned on me that I'm nothing. Wait a minute, am I anything? Am I a substance, like substance dualists will argue? And then in the dream, something strange occurred. The mirror I was looking at was no longer a mirror. It was a window looking straight into a light of the glorious one himself. And I couldn't see him because it was just too bright. It said, you're not. You are not complete until you know me. It's not who you are, it's whose you are. You are known in relationship, not in what you are, it's in who you are in me. And I just woke up, I got, what on earth? It was just a profound, um, disturbingly enlightening position of uh, finding myself in Christ, in God. Um, I think that's yeah. that stage you're referring to, or maybe not. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Kierkegaard at the beginning of Sickness Unto Death, in fact, says that despair is only ever rooted out finally when we are able to, as he puts it, rest transparently in the one who established us. And in that sense, um, th there's some play in the Danish that I actually find really cool uh -huh. where he basically is saying that when we are able to hide within ourselves, right, because we protect ourselves with objects and um, even our own sense of virtue and the ethical, that we constantly will be despairing because we're always working to create some sort of self-protective narrative. But what happens in the religious, he says, is that the idea of resting transparently, 
the, the Danish just basically means to have sight through something. Mm. So it's such that we're basically um, unable to hide within ourselves and God sees through us transparently. And in that moment, we are able then to recognize that it was never about what we did. It was about the fact, as he puts it in another text, that when in relation to God, we are always wrong. So it's not about if I just work harder, I can get there. That's the ethical and aesthetic both have that model, right? If I just work hard, I can achieve the goal. Right, right. It's like, no, the goal is to become a self. And the only way to become a self is to at every instant make this movement of faith. But it's not a movement of my own sort of um, willing myself forward. It's that I will myself to be in some sense resting into God that has created me. And that relationship, that relational grounding is for Kierkegaard what invites us ultimately to selfhood. You know, I'm going to open up um, some questions here from other students. If you have any guys, you can go to turn your mic on on that. We'll do that. Uh, let, me, um, let me touch base on this in spiritual, scriptural sense. So the, 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 uh, the New Testament talks about uh, uh, coming to give your life over to God by, uh, by welcoming him into a relationship with you. Uh, Christ talks about that. And Apostle Paul talks about um, he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be, quote, saved. Um, uh, modern evangelicalism, starting post-enlightenment, uh, have got that into some kind of um, uh, walk of faith up to the altar in accepting Christ, so to speak, like a Billy Graham crusade type of thing. At that point, you have become a believer. But then, then the, that stage is over, then you move on and live your normal life, which is, according to ethical research and the Pew research, there's no distinction there between a believer and a non-believer anywhere. <laughs> it gets to be problematic. So then how does one maintain this deep sense of that selfness through time? How does credit card um, give us guidance in that? Especially, if I may, through times of despair and difficulty. Yeah. I mean, Kierkegaard's life was certainly not marked by much happiness. Um, he, he was a, a, a person who died young, died at 42, uh, actually, which is sort of oddly scary to me that I'm now the age Kierkegaard was when he died. Oh, um, Kierkegaard uh, had a, a really tragic youth, uh, all kinds of, had a very, very religiously intense um, father. He went to college, couldn't quite figure out what he wanted to do, you know, which probably resonates with a lot of students today. Um, he was, he, he suffered from a variety of different ailments, and there's some debate about what those really were. Um, but he was mocked in the press. Uh, he apparently had some sort of hunchback, and so they would call him Kierkegaard the cripple, um, you know, in, in different ways. They, they would mock him and, and make light of him. Uh, he abandoned, or, or abandoned the wrong word, he broke off his engagement with this woman, Regina Olson, who was the love of his life. And he broke off the engagement uh, because he felt like he couldn't truly pursue what God had called him to if he was also distracted by the social obligations of uh, you know, marriage. So he lived his life in what we would in many ways describe as a despairing kind of miserable sure. condition. Uh, his goal, actually, if he said everything had worked out the way he had hoped, he would have been a country pastor. Like that, that's actually kind of what he sort of wanted to be and married Regina and had some kids and lived old. And, right. But he didn't get to do any of this. Uh, he was a voracious writer, um, but ended up actually the week before he died, he had withdrawn the last bit of money that he had and he actually collapses in the street um, and dies a week later, uh, broke. And having given everything, he waged a battle against what he calls Christendom. And at the end of his life, actually, was um, handing out basically pamphlets on the sides of the streets, trying to wage this battle against what he took to be the abuses of the Christian church. Um, so this is not a happy guy. Um, and he writes in under you know a lot of different pseudonyms, but one of the pseudonyms he writes under is in the aesthetic. And he he says something that I think reflects his own life. He says. Um, really happy people just don't write poetry, <laughs> right? Which I think is kind of true for Kierkegaard. Like if you're super happy and everything's rocking, how could you possibly write this much, right? Uh -huh. You'd have other things to do. Uh -huh. So how Kierkegaard helps us navigate this, I think is A, we've got to be careful not to glamorize his own actual historical existence too much. 
Um, this, this is a guy who was not someone that I think was probably a model for human existence, despite the fact that he gives us a philosophy that invites us to what I take to be the very heights of human existence. And I think there's probably three characteristics that define the sort of life um, that he would recommend. Okay. One is a radical humility. So he, he recognizes that in becoming a self, we've got to recognize that we are never yet where it is that we are trying to go in this um, you know, existential sense, as opposed to, I don't yet have the car I want. It's, I'm not yet the person who has been perfected. This, this mm-hmm. constancy of recognizing I still have a long way to go in relation to God is a radical, humbling reality. That's what he means by saying in relation to God, I'm always wrong. But he says that thought is up building. Not that, oh, it's miserable. What could I possibly do? I'm always wrong. He's like, no, this is great. <laughs> because it's not a matter of if I just worked harder, I would get it figured out. It's this humbling recognition, no matter how hard I work, I'm, I'm not somehow getting better in relation to God. <laughs> so chill out, do the best you can. You know, as Kendrick Lamar would say, right, sit down, be humble. Like there's something right about that that I think Kierkegaard understands. And then the second thing I think Kierkegaard gets right on this front and why he's helpful is he doesn't make light of difficulty itself as some sort of example of Christian failure. So in the time of health and wealth theology, I think that it's, uh, you know, or, or even recently in light of the pandemic, you know, people who were going to church, violating stay-at-home orders and saying, I'm covered by Jesus's blood, I'm fine. What Uh virus can get me? Kierkegaard fundamentally would see this as a problem. And it would be a problem because what we've done is recognize that this kind of clarity and certainty actually ends up leading to a kind of what I would describe as idolatry of Christian egoism, (laughs) right? (laughs) Where we are the ones who have got this, and that's why we are the best. Kierkegaard's response is going to be, dude, that's why we're becoming a Christian, <laughs> right? It's not about having, it's about constantly striving toward. So questions matter for Kierkegaard. And this, since he echoes Nietzsche, or Nietzsche echoes Kierkegaard, um, he, he recognizes that difficulty is important. And so in those ways, I think he reminds us, be humble. Be careful not to think that Christianity yields some sort of everything will work out great, right? This kind of Protestant work ethic model where, hey, if you're really blessed, you'll know it and everybody else will see it. Kierkegaard eschews that. And then the third thing I think that Kierkegaard reminds us of is in moments of despair, um, it's important never to think that Christianity was to invite us out of the Christian, or excuse me, out of the mortal condition. So sometimes we talk about like, you know, going to heaven as this sort of, if we can just make it through living, yeah, yeah. Then we're going to get up there, right? It's Still almost, well, we're, we're, we're almost acting like we are eternal now, rather than recognizing the God that Christianity articulates is a God who says eternity happens in the intersection with temporal existence. And so Kierkegaard actually as an existentialist, the father of existentialism in some ways, reminds us that, hey, you're going to die, right? Like sickness is also real. These mortal embodied difficult struggles, it's not something to act as if we somehow, oh, we'll just avoid all this because Christianity invites us out of our humanity. No, Christianity is a narrative of a God who comes down into humanity. So Kierkegaard offers a God I describe as a God who's not so much um, <clears throat> substituting for us, but joining us in the midst of the human condition that was declared good at the opening of Genesis. Mm. So the created order, ex- existence itself, is in fact something that we are called to flourish internal to, not something we are called to flourish by escaping. So there's no escapism. There's no eschatological triumphalism in Kierkegaard. There is instead an eschatological hope that grounds us in our mortality. So those so, three things. So let me see. You got humility, if I may just give a label, um, not focused on a work ethic, 
right. more, more, more of faith, as in with the sola fide, with the Reformation, instead of working mm-hmm. it the way to heaven, you have a faith. What, was it, what would you title the third aspect? Uh, I, I put it that the embrace of the human condition, rather than trying to escape it. There's so no embrace escape. yourself. Yes, there's, there's no escapist uh, narrative in Kierkegaard. It's never about getting out of our humanity to join God. It's about, remember, being thrown back into the world yes. and God saying, hey, that move is the move, in fact, that I performed in the incarnation. Interesting. That's, that's uh, interesting. The, um, in comparative religions, you have the people wanting to get to God within Christendom, within the incarnation. God actually breaks the threshold of heaven and becomes one of us and walks among us, which is the fascinating in analyzing that. Even in a scientific or sci-fi sense, the alien becomes one of us and we recognize this is actually the creator it can really blow you out of the water um, um, existentially when you analyze it. All right, there's some very interesting points. You've made some profound analogies. We really appreciate that. All right, so I have some questions from students who've been uh, posting them. Feel free to take off your um, uh, mute, guys, and go ahead and just let me know if you want to do that. In the meantime, uh, I have Roxy, Roxana asks, what does it mean to be transparent with yourself? And Mikhail said, does it mean to be as you truly are? Yeah, so these, 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 are, these are hard questions. I'd love to hear from you guys kind of how to think those through. So Miguel, Roxana, what, what, what are you getting at when you ask these questions? Well, when she asked that question, when she said, what does it mean to be transparent with yourself? And I was asking, well, I was kind of answering and asking to see yourself as you truly are. And the thing is, what would be the point of doing something like that? Uh, are you trying to, I don't know, when you're trying to be transparent with yourself, is it because you really want to know who you are? Or is it because there's some other person who you're trying to relate to? Is because perhaps there's something that another person has said to you or done to you or you did to them, and the response is making you question what type of person you are? In that case, you're not truly concerned with about uh, about seeing yourself 100% unbiased. You're thinking about what am I to that particular person, or even perhaps to those particular groups of people, or something like that. But you know, yeah, no, these are really, really good questions. Um, so I, I think that there is definitely in Kierkegaard a kind of um, Connected to the humility requirement is maybe this, we've got to be honest with ourselves. And this is what leads to recognizing, you know, in relation to God, I don't have it all figured out. Um, this, this idea that um, in relation to others, I then in fact find myself always struggling to figure out, you know, what's the right thing to do? How do I live? How ought I engage? So I think when Kierkegaard talks about transparency, he means it in two senses. The idea that we um, become transparent to God, that we rest transparently, become transparent to God so that God sees through us, allows us to then recognize that I, I need to stop acting like I can get this all under control. I can handle this all myself. The way I like to put it is this is sort of like the Kanye paradox, right? If Kanye were as good as Kanye thinks he is, then Kanye wouldn't have to walk around telling everybody how good he is. (laughs) So if we genuinely are transparently revealed unto ourselves, what that means is, hey, you know, God sees me. So why is it that I am even trying to fake or front or put on airs or try to be something I'm not? But what I recognize is I'm not yet what I could be. And that's where that existential striving as opposed to economic striving would play in, right? I've still got a long way to go. God help me. That then allows me to say in relation to other people, am I in fact engaging them like I've got this all figured out or am I engaging them with this spirit of humility, inviting them to be able also to live toward God and inspired by our relationship to recognize, hey, we got to help each other move forward, right? Does that make sense? Hmm. I suppose. <laughs> My whole thing is when it comes to a relationship with God, as many people put it, 
is it the reason why people are seeking God? And I'm assuming that this is Yahweh we're talking about. Isn't there a goal in mind? Especially when it comes to the whole narrative of Christianity. Even though a lot of people have a, a lot of different interpretations about, I don't know, about Yahweh himself and the whole narrative that he placed in the Bible. The main thing that I think most Christians agree upon is that they're looking for some type of sense of eternity, something to explain what happens to them after they're gone or what happened before about the questions that we can't really answer within one lifetime. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's my main question. Isn't I mean, it the main reason why most Christians are concerned about these things? or most religious people in general are concerned about such things because they want to have an answer and some sense of eternity within themselves, even though technically speaking, I don't think anyone can in any way say that they're eternal in themselves, like as of themselves. Like when it comes to me, to you, to our professor, you know, we're all going to die eventually, right? And the thing is, we don't exist. Uh, how can I put it? The very fact that we're here right now is not to say that everything is just impermanent in every way. It's just that we are part of something bigger, okay. which is the universe at large. And the very fact that we're here right now and feeling uncomfortable about it doesn't really matter. Mm. It's just. Yeah. It's just us changing from form to form. Like nobody thinks to ask the question of what were you before, you know, you were born. Yeah. No, these are you great questions. To, All right, Mikhail, that was, that was a lot of information there, a lot of uh, insights. Um, I love it. I actually think the question you asked in the chat is exactly the right one. So, well, which God are we talking about when it comes to resting transparently? So when I teach philosophy of religion, um, we actually spend the first month talking about, so what do we even mean by religion when we do philosophy of religion? And then we talk about why doing philosophy of religion so often is just doing the philosophy of classical Christian theism. What would it look like if we asked which God, what divinity, right? Which transcendence? So I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that we've got to be careful not to give in to a kind of um, tacit set of assumptions that God or the divine or the transcendent has to be equated in a very particular way. I think for Kierkegaard, it's important to recognize he's operating and coming out of a very particular Christian, decidedly Lutheran sort of perspective. But the insights Kierkegaard offers about the human condition, I actually think don't have to uh, embrace all of that Christian framework. So for example, um, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, Nietzsche certainly not a Christian, um, they both invite us, in my opinion, to engage something like the death of God in productive ways. Well, how is it that a Christian could encourage the death of God? Notice Kierkegaard is encouraging that we break down the idols that have been created, whereby we worship our church, or we worship our success, or we worship our status, rather than recognizing God should rupture and wreck us in impressive ways. Well, Nietzsche says the same thing. It's just that Nietzsche doesn't then think the best way to do this is by grounding yourself in something like a canonic Christian God, right? So recognizing these existential dynamics in Kierkegaard, I think are super really are super helpful. So when we rest transparently, it's not just because we say, oh, well, this assumes you know, Yahweh or Jehovah or a particular notion of Jesus or Krishna or Shiva or whatever. It's instead simply to say, how is it that we can take ourselves up as mortals, as embodied, without trying to escape our human condition and do this in a way where, look, maybe the point of talking about the divine isn't to answer big metaphysical questions about life before and after death. Maybe the point of talking reflectively about the divine is to invite us to figure out what's worth being faithful to while we're alive. What is it that's worthy of our worship and our devotion as mortal beings, given that we've only got so much time, right? 
those questions become, I think, deeply human questions and don't require that we ask them only from Christian starting points. They instead invite us, I think, to rethink what Christianity might be offering. There's a lot there. Thank you, um, Professor Aaron. All right, guys, any other? We're wrapping up on time here. We've gone over an hour. um, That's what I originally promised a little bit under an hour, but what do you do? This philosophy for you. (laughs) My fault, guys. I I actually had a delivery of groceries that came to my front door like 20 minutes before I was supposed to be on the call. And so I could either let my yogurt and eggs spoil or I could go out and clean them all and disinfect it so my wife could then get them in the house. And so that's why I was late. So I do apologize. That's okay. If you have any other questions? Yeah. Anything yeah. at all? I don't know if anybody else, you want to jump in here? Like um, there's a few people on the line. If you have anything, let us know. Otherwise, I'm going to start wrapping the uh, meeting up and with, uh, give Aaron the final word for an illustration that will help us uh, to take this home with, something to tattoo on our minds. Um, Mm. Well, I can keep asking questions, or it has to be someone else now. <laughs> Give it a moment, Mikel. Let's see if anybody jumps in. Usually, silence is the uh, one that actually turns the table over. Uh, it's, it's a method that's actually used. Okay, go ahead, Mikel. Uh, ask your final question, and I'll, I'll let him wrap it up then. Well, you know, now, now I've forgotten my question. Uh, what was I going to say? Let me think. While you're thinking, um, you mentioned the which God issue, and I know you're big with philosophy and philosophy of religion and apologetics. And how important is the question of truth to you personally, as a philosopher, as a husband, as a father, as a, as a, as a believer yourself? Yeah, uh, the question of truth of the capital T, objectively speaking, regarding uh, that, because for Kierkegaard, truth, objectively speaking, is, is not as important as truth, subjectively speaking, as what it yeah. means to me. But then you have that that, that postmodern um, uh, fluctuation of feeling. In contrast to subjectivity and objectivity in God. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> so the way I like to put it is actually following a guy named Merrill Westfall. I think his account is exactly right. And he says, look, what postmodernism does, and this really starts with Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and others, is it's not that they reject truth with a capital T. It's just that they locate truth with a capital T as having to be affirmed in some embodied context, in some history, in light of some experiences. So it's basically a statement like this. The truth with a small t is that there is truth with a capital T. So the game is not about the capital T truth stuff. The game is, and the difficulty in the human life is, how is it we live into the lowercase t truth that will define us? Will I be someone whose truth, lowercase t, is that there is capital T truth as grounded in Christianity or some other uh, objective narrative? Or alternatively, that's Kierkegaard's model. Alternatively, what about Nietzsche? The lowercase t truth for Nietzsche is that there is no capital T truth. So Kierkegaard and Nietzsche both give us the emphasis on the truth is subjectivity. It's that lowercase t lived invested, embodied, relational thing. That's what matters. How will I live this out? And then the what question, is it capital T or non-capital T? That actually becomes in some ways the content into which I live. So for me, the stress is, am I living with everything I've got into what I think there are good reasons to think is capital T true? I'm doing the best I can. But when we start saying things like the capital T truth is that there is this capital T truth, I think that requires us to get out of our embodied location somehow, to occupy a divine perspective on the world. And I just don't think that's possible. So therefore, for me, I'm with Kierkegaard. Real truth is what is truth that is true for you? Not in the sense that, hey, pick and choose whatever, man. You know, it's all flighty. It's, no, what is the truth that you are willing to give your life toward? Mm. And that's what I was saying to Mikhail. It, it's, it's about what is worthy of our devotion, what is worthy of our trust, our faith, our worship. 
And at some level, I think that there are good reasons to think that Christianity or some religious tradition is probably a better model than a purely materialistic, physicalist account. But I think that there are plenty of materialist physicalists out there running around living with more faith and passion and devotion and investment than I see Christians who I think might get the capital T truth right, but they're living so badly in relation to it that I actually think they might be missing the capital T truth, right? So that's how I would articulate that relation. Fascinating. All right. I I asked the question here located on the board behind me, uh, why love, why even live? Let's wrap it up with the uh, answer to that question that helps us uh, along, um, you know, wrapping up all what we talked about with the three stages of life, the aesthetic, the ethical, and finally the spiritual or religious. I'll give you the last word. Uh, it, it, it's been such an honor to be with you all today. Uh, and if for any reason you have other questions, uh, Mikhail, my hunch is you got a bunch that are, that are popping back there, man. <clears throat> Drop me an email. Uh, it's just aaron.simmons at furman.edu. Uh, you can, you can you know, contact your professor. He'll be happy to put you... Uh, in touch with me. Whatever I can do to be a resource for you guys, let me know. Um, I've also got a YouTube channel uh, that you're welcome to check out, which actually I do daily philosophy videos, about four or five minute videos. Good that are stuff, trying guys. To, Good stuff. It's, it's fun. It's like thinking, how do we make philosophy practical for where we are in a pandemic? So um, that's simply uh, called philosophy for where we find ourselves on YouTube. But to the question, why love, why even live? Um, I, I actually think that these are probably connected. So why even live? I think the, the, I, this, this is actually a, a classical um, Camus question. Albert Camus says there's only one question in philosophy, whether or not to kill ourselves, which is a horrible way to frame it, but it's really, really smart, which is, look, are you going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward in life or not? Right. And if you're not, then own the fact that you're deciding none of this matters. But if you think it matters, why does it matter? And for me, uh, here, I, I just noticed in the chat, someone, um, Roxana, I think you're right on this. I actually think, why live? Because we are already in relations of love, right? That there are things worthy of our love in the world. And hopefully, those things, as we've learned in the three stages, are relations with your family and your God, right? Not just relations to your phone and your car. (laughs) But when we recognize that we are fundamentally relational beings, that what has always mattered continues to matter now, the pandemic has changed nothing about the human condition. Mm. Like we were gonna die before, we're gonna die now, we're gonna die after. That doesn't make a light of death. It actually reminds us that living on purpose where we are while we can is really important. The pandemic is only scary because we have things that we would like to do, right? And so let's do those things and do them well. Wow. So I, I don't think, Mikhail, that uh, we live because it hurts to die. I actually think we fear death because we continue to love living. And so we should then live with that love intentionally. And that's what I think philosophy does. Philosophy invites us to be reflective and, and purposive, to be on purpose living. And so why love? At some level, because others have already loved us, right? You're only existing now because your parents didn't let you die or your guardians didn't let you die when you were like three months old. So our very existence is relationally conditioned on the fact that others loved us enough to sacrifice their own time and energy and priorities to care for us. I have a 10 year old, like he, he's interrupting, he's, you know, as, as Kendrick also would say, like dude's killing my vibe almost every day because he requires so much time and attention. And yet there's nothing more important that I can do than be invested in him. And so why do I keep living? Because I think it matters that those sorts of investments have been paid to me and I'm paying them to others. And this is why the hashtag in it together, I think is so smart. We are in this together. And so whether you are isolated at home, whether you haven't seen anybody in six weeks, I've not seen anybody but my family in six weeks. Nonetheless, 
we are in this together and that matters but it matters because it always did nothing essential has changed so we keep moving forward on purpose and i think that that actually is well worth our time well said great way to end it let me uh, let me conclude with a postscript a um an analogy that helped me uh, it's an old rabbinic tradition it says some of the rabbis would carry within them two scraps of paper and both their and their robes and one would say when I'm feeling all prideful and full of myself and looking down at others and recognizing the achievements I have gotten, I'll pull out that scrap or that parchment and I'll read it and it'll say, dust you are and dust you will return. And then when life gets tough and then I feel in despair and a failure and miserable and people I love betray me and there's the diagnosis comes, then I pull out the other scrap and it says, the very stars were made for your eyes. You are special. And there's that balance we have, right? I love it. That's exactly right. We, we make the trampoline up, and then God says, hey, I didn't make you to get out of the world. I made you to be in it. And so for me, that, that keeps me moving. But y'all, look, I'm anxious too right now. I'm definitely scared. Uh, you know, I freaking wipe off all of my groceries with Clorox. I mean, this is a weird time. It is. Uh, you know, low-key anxiety, I think, is impossible to avoid right now. But the way that we are able to maybe make it through a little bit easier is recognizing that every single person who we find inspirational is also sharing the human condition with us. Doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how poor you are, doesn't matter what race you are, what background, what religion, that we are all embodied and there's something shared there that really does matter. And so as far as I'm concerned, that solidarity is this amazing thing that we're seeing around the world right now. Um, hopefully, and, and I, I told your professor I wouldn't get into too much politics, and so I won't. Um, I'm definitely on the left side on some of these things. But hopefully, what we see happening right now is these moments of solidarity invite us to rethink how we could understand our very social order. And maybe we can move forward in different ways and think about things like healthcare and basic incomes and uh, racial solidarity and liberation theology as a resource to the white evangelical church. All of these sorts of moments, I think, really are becoming possible um, because unfortunately we find ourselves in crisis. So don't miss the innovation that can happen when we actually are tempted by fear. Because I think we have really good stuff we can do together. We need y'all's voices. Amen. Yeah. So we, all, we, we shouldn't waste a crisis. <laughs> At some level. That's right. Right. Okay, guys. Any, any uh, final things here? I'm going to wrap it up here because you know, I know he has to get back to his family and as well for all of us. Well, I, the question I was going to ask that I remember was when you were talking about in order to create a self, people need to find their way to God or find their place within God. And personally, to me, when you say like that, it sounds more like you're trying to be absorbed within something greater to find meaning rather than, you know, facing oblivion in its, in its entirety and creating your own personality from nothing. Anyway. Yeah, no, and a real quick thought, then we got to wrap it up. Yeah. Nietzsche says that when we face the abyss, the abyss faces back. <laughs> and Nietzsche's response is that we simply affirm the abysmal, right? That we, we walk to the edge and jump. And this is for him a mode in which we articulate our dignity. Um, I teach a class called God, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And we read Nietzsche and take him really seriously on what it would look like not to be overwhelmed by the things that are, you know, the, the ugly in life, right? How do we actually will even that? Kierkegaard is just different on this front. So um, though I tend to side with Kierkegaard on some of these issues, I think that both of them are absolutely getting the question right, which is what you're wrestling with. This idea of saying, hey, but doesn't God just become a kind of crutch, a kind of uh, way to not have to face up to what's difficult? And I actually think that's what Kierkegaard opposes in what he calls Christendom. So Kierkegaard, like Nietzsche, has no time for Christianity as a kind of salve to human difficulty, as a sort of uh, uh, you know, band-aid that we mask over the flesh wound that we've got. 
Instead, Kierkegaard wants to say, no, resting in God is a, you might even say metaphorical way, right? Whether you want to follow him on the Christianity or not, I think it was literal for him. But metaphorically, we have to find a way not simply to see life as nothing but struggle, 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 and death. How is it we can find life to be joy in the midst of struggle? How is it we can find justice in the midst of injustice? How is it we can find uh, celebration and release at the same moment that we're finding pain and anxiety? That tension is actually why I think Kierkegaard says we've got to rest in God. And he's simply asking all of us, so what then is your God? Where is it you find that rest, that joy, that solidarity, and that hope that may be in relation to others? That might be in some sort of social program and social justice work. But it also might be for lots of people, right? Uh, their church rather than God. It might be their car or their bank account rather than relationships. And so that's the sort of question Kierkegaard asks is, where will we find rest in the midst of the difficulty that we are not called to escape, but we are called to endure? And he thinks that God actually walks with us through it. Nietzsche thinks we walk alone. And so that's why we've got to get stronger in order to keep moving forward. They have different answers, but I think they're asking the same question in light of the same existential situation. So really, really good point, Miguel. Thank you all so much. I have enjoyed this. If I can do anything else for you, follow up. But I, I wish you well with this uh, work and these classes. This is absolutely fantastic stuff. This is wonderful. Thank you, Professor Aaron. Much appreciated. Thank you, guys. All right. Be safe, guys. Wash hands. <laughs> Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you benefited from it, if you found some nuggets of wisdom to uh, help you grow in, uh, along your path in life, I do appreciate if you give me a review on iTunes, a good review there, and uh, subscribe to our podcast. God bless you.